Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by this message from the Nichols Road Campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. Without further ado, I have someone amazing to introduce to you. Most of you already know and love him. If you don't already know him and Chloe, although Chloe's not preaching, just Jimmy. But they're both amazing. Jimmy, well, Jimmy and Chloe and Bill and I were ordained together um, almost three years ago. And so we have this special bond with them. We love them so much. Jimmy is very wise. He loves to learn. He is constantly learning, and he's really good at teaching what he learns, and he's really good at hearing God's voice and sharing it um, boldly and lovingly. He's really creative, and we're so glad to have you back and hear a little bit about what you guys have been up to, but come on up. Yeah. Yeah, and let's pray. Let's pray. Just reach out your hand. We're just going to pray for him. Thank you, Father, for the McKees. Thank you for Pastor Jimmy. And just the blessing of, you know, sending him out so that he can follow you in the uh, calling you have for him and their family, but yet maintaining this um, beautiful friendship and that he can come back and minister to us. And so we just look forward to what you're going to um, highlight to us and teach us through the sermon that he has prepared. I just pray you would anoint his words, Lord, whatever you want us to hear this morning, that that would be what flows out of his mouth. I just thank you um, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, it is... Uh, great to be back in the house of the Lord here in Kalamazoo. So love this family. Uh, and I want to say thank you uh, as well on, on behalf of Chloe and I. Whether you all know it or not, New Day is actually a, a significant supporter financially of what we feel God has called us to do in, in planting a church in, in the greater Detroit area. And so we're deeply grateful and thankful to this community for your abundant generosity and enabling us to move forward with that. Um, and so honored to be back here. I reached out to Cameron earlier in the year, and I and I was like, well, I wasn't trying to invite myself back. I'm like, hey, say, but I'm like, hey, I want to if if it's helpful, like any at any point, I'm, I would love to come back just to because I love this family and you guys are, are so. Uh, just you, you help you support us and and so he's like yeah I'll take you up on that I'll be gone in Florida on this week here you go so here I am <laughs> here I am I inv- I've invited myself to be here and it's good to be here <clears throat> so I I'm going to continue to to move us forward in this Ark of the Bible series um, at a certain point we've been asking where is Jesus in this series well I have an easy week because I get to preach Jesus like the actual like event of Jesus coming. So it's kind of cheating, uh, but I'm okay with that. Um, so, but I wanted to take the first part and just summarize uh, where, where we've been up to this point, because we all know Jesus doesn't just plop onto the scene. There's a, there's a massive story. In fact, he was in the beginning with God, the word, and, and, has, and has been in the, in the Holy Trinity, eternally God, and yet at a certain designated point in history, in the wisdom of God, took on flesh. 
in, uh, in the person of Jesus and uh, uh, forever remains in a body. Um, so let me, just, let me just start with creation. Creation is uh, God's pure initiative. There's nothing that, that kind of prompted him. There's nothing that kind of he's reacting to. He's creating out of pure initiative. He's the only uncreated one. And he, and he speaks and creation comes into existence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, he, and, then, he, and then he takes uh, it's kind of the, the uncreated world and he brings order and he brings distinction and he brings purpose and, and function to, to all that exists. Uh, as, a, as the pinnacle of his creation, we know this, that, that, he, that he creates humanity. He creates men and women to bear his image, to uniquely reflect him as happy, holy little mirrors of his glory in the world. That was his purpose. From the beginning, and he commissions he commissions uh, Adam and Eve to rule this beautiful world on behalf, on God's behalf, uh, with His presence, uh, fully available and, and and with them as they take His purposes beyond the garden into the rest of the world. So this is a story about humanity given the capacity to do meaningful life giving work, and the question uh, that that we run into is how, how, how are they to go about this? They're, they're given a choice and it's represented in a fruit tree. They can partner with God and find freedom in his presence by trusting in his knowledge of good and evil and, and his purposes in the earth, or they can seize power and define good and evil on their own terms, which God warns will kill them. Well, we know the story of deceptive voice through the through a serpent comes in to tempt them to take the fruit of this one tree uh, where they'll gain the power and the freedom to rule on their own terms. So the, in other words, the temptation in the beginning that continues to be the case throughout the centuries is that, is that we would have progress without the presence of God. That you can have the kingdom without the king and that you, can, and that you actually get to be the king and queen on your own terms. Isn't that where we still find ourselves today? So Mark Sayers, one of my favorite cultural commentators, he's a pastor out of Australia, he says this, secularism is the attempt to create a system for human flourishing in which the presence of God is absent. So in in one sense, Adam and Eve were the first secular humanists. We're going to create a system of human flourishing apart from the presence of God. We, we can figure this out. We're, we, are, we are now our sense of authority. And by the way, I apologize for anybody on the stream. I don't have slides and I don't have scriptures. Forgive me. I just have to try to follow along. I apologize. So, I meant to say that at the beginning. So they take the fruit... And it's, and it's emblematic of taking matters into our own hands, which we're constantly still, to this day, tempted to do. And in doing so, the entire structure of the cosmos is fractured and distorted, and, and, and God, God's intended blessing is revoked, and, and instead a curse is put on the man, the woman, the snake, and everything else. They're kicked out of the garden that God had made for them 
but not before there's a promise. God promises that one of Eve's children would someday, eventually, sooner or later, crush the head of the snake. That she would have a child to put things right. And it still is important to say that in our world, something is terribly wrong and must be put right. So we, we have a, a certain sense of uh, American optimism that, you know, things aren't that bad. And we kind of are ignorant of our, our history and, you know, the history of the world and our own human experience. And we just try to, we try to make it seem sentimental. You know what? We've, everyone's made mistakes, but no one's perfect. We're all human. And we, do, we diminish the sense of utter distortion and brokenness in the world that we live. This doesn't help us. So now I want to summarize kind of a big chunks of the Bible. I mean, I know it's hard. We're flying through. And I'm, I want to, I'm using, and I'll be kind of quoting sporadically throughout, the, the biggest story, which is kind of a children's book, really helpful summary of the Bible. So that's kind of a plug, different points. I'm going to be reading things, but some of it's from there. I'm not really distinguishing what's from there and what's not. Biggest story, Kevin DeYoung. Okay. So again, we're talking about God's initiative. God's the one who, 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 be, who, who starts things. He's not reacting. He's the one who takes initiative. We have, we have uh, God taking initiative in, uh, in, in Abraham, right? God, did, Abraham didn't seek God out. God called to Abraham and he, and he gives him promises that his offspring, from his offspring would come a new people and a nation would have another chance to make the right choice. All the blessings that God wanted to give to Adam and Eve, uh, he promised Abraham and his family. If they succeed, it will open up a new way forward for all of humanity. But as we know, the story is far from perfect. It doesn't go well. Abraham's family gives in to the same temptations to redefine good and evil on their own terms, apart from God. The descendants of Abraham end up in Egypt, where the story of Moses picks up. Israelites are enslaved in Egypt and God delivers them from bondage and promises to lead them into the land that he had promised to Abraham. So we see again the faithfulness of God to stay true to these promises despite humanity's errors. But but again, we have more redefining of good and evil on our own terms as we move through the story of the Bible. Finally, they get to the promised land and uh, summarizing hundreds of years of History, they were meant to show the nations what God was like. But yet more often, they had a hard time not just copying the nations in their idolatry and immorality. And yet we have this piece of the presence of God, right? God, God, God wanted his presence to, to fill Adam and Eve so that he could be his, their, his co-agents in the world to represent him in, in, in the earth. And yet sin and the fall separates God's presence and, and it forces God to mediate through, through religion to protect humans from the death that would occur if they entered the fullness of God's presence in their fallen and fleshly rebellion. His presence would have to be mediated and partial. Mediated through fire, clouds, sacrifice, temples, curtains, codes of purity. There could be a relationship, but only mediated through religion. 
There still could not be a full life in his presence. The relationship remained fractured. There was an anticipation. All, all, the, all the things of the Old Testament were never meant to be a completion. God didn't, Jesus, Jesus coming wasn't God's plan B. Jesus' fullness of the Trinity from eternity past knew that there was a time and place to bring all things in completion in his coming. And so God hadn't, hadn't still hadn't forgotten the promise that he had made in, in the garden. A deliverer was on his way. But things continued to go from bad to worse. It seemed as though no matter how many times God saved his people, people the Israelites were never quite safe from themselves. Didn't matter how many prophets God sent, the people never really listened, not for long anyway. And so one day, God stopped sending prophets. No more warnings, no more direction, no more words from the Lord, only silence for about 400 years. So you can imagine the, the, the deafening silence, the anticipation, the, the, where your imagination goes when you have this story that you find yourself inheriting but not knowing what's the way forward. And so you have all sorts of things that are happening in this, what they call the intertestamental period, this, these 400 years in, in the story of God's people. And part of that was there was an anticipation of what this coming deliverer would look like. All sorts of imagination, things pulled from the Old Testament, things created out of thin air to, just, to say, here's, here's probably what he's going to look like. Here's what he's going to be like. And, yet we, then, and then we have Jesus entering. The second Adam, the son of Eve, the child of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God, the son of man, the prophet to fulfill many prophecies, the king to rule over all kings, the priest to mediate a better covenant, the God-man who was in the beginning with God, take on flesh and be born of a woman. But how, how would he come? The long-awaited deliverer, the hoped-for Messiah, the savior of the world. What would it look like? What would his entrance into the world look like? All sorts of things, all sorts of ways that people were imagining this. And now to quote from another child's storybook Bible, the Jesus storybook Bible. As silent as falling snow, he came in. And when no one was looking, in the darkness, he came. This was subversive. This was not what people were expecting. And we'll find again and again, Jesus is subverting expectations in the wisdom of God. Born in the humblest of estates, forsaking all divine privileges, he came to a place where no one was looking in a way that no one was expecting. So why did he, why did he come? Well, he came to show us what God is like. We call this the incarnation. The, son, the eternal God incarnating himself, taking on flesh, being born of a, of a woman into the world as a baby. This is the incarnation. John 1 says it like this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. And then verse 14, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And then verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the, but the one and only son, that is Jesus, who is himself God 
and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So when we see Jesus, we see God. Jesus, tells him, Jesus himself tells us why he came. He, he's quoting the prophet Isaiah. This is in Luke 4. He stands up in the synagogue and he says this. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then, Luke 4 says, he rolled up the scroll of Isaiah, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Everybody's eyes were fastened on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So this is, this is uh, guns blazing. Jesus comes out and he's like, no, this, this I am he. This, this long anticipated, this hope for Messiah, this, this, this massive build, I'm, I'm the one. In his, in his interaction with Zacchaeus in Luke 19, he summarizes kind of his purpose in, in, in coming. He says, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. In the gospel of Mark, when he's, when he's being ridiculed for eating with tax collectors and sinners and associating with, with questionable people, Jesus answers, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So then, so if these are the reasons he came, I mean, it's, I mean, just so we're aware, what I'm, the things that I'm quoting and saying, it's just the smallest sliver. Like my, my mind's spinning as I'm trying to put this together. Like, how do I preach on Jesus? There's so many prophecies and, and things that he fulfills. And man, it's, it's, it was actually quite difficult to try to pull together like, Okay, I'm trying to talk about Jesus. It seems so simple, but there's so much that he's, that he's doing in his life and death. Okay, so how would he fulfill, how would he do all these things? How would he proclaim good news to the poor and freedom for the prisoners and seek and save the lost and call sinners to repentance? What was, what was the, the way he would go about doing this? Here's a question we, we may know the answer to kind of in, in, in retrospect, but nobody in Jesus's time could have imagined that the hope for Messiah, the long awaited deliverer, who was expected, kind of the common expectation, was that he would deliver us from them. That we, who have a corporate identity as Israel oppressed under the, under the Roman Empire, he would deliver us from them. We are, we are uh, good. They are bad. That he would redeem the land that God had promised Abraham, their forefather. That he would inaugurate the realm of God's injustice and righteousness with clear lines drawn between the good and the bad, the righteous and the unrighteous. But the situation was and is far more desperate and dire than that. Right? We still want to, want to draw lines between us and them, between a good me, bad you. But it's far more desperate and dire than that. Uh, here's a quote from a man, some of you may have 
heard this quote or heard this name, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a, who, who was a Soviet dis- descendant, or not descendant, uh, dissident, <laughs> wrong word. He, he, was, he was a part of the Soviet Union and then, and then retracted and, and kind of wrote this book called The Gulag Archipelago about all the things that were wrong with the, with the Soviet regime and the ways that it, that it went about things. I haven't read the book. I'm just quoting him. Okay, here we go. He says, if only you were all so simple. In other words, if only it was so simple as good, bad, us, them. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? I'm quoting him here because this isn't, I mean, scripture attests to this, but this is, a, this is not a, a Christian uh, manifesto. This is a man who has experienced the evil of the world. And rather than saying, bad them, good me, he's saying, you know what? I, I, I'm on, I can be honest enough to see that I have that capacity too. That the evil of the Soviet Union is latent in me. And that's kind of the, 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 the method or the, the approach and the reality that Jesus came to, to inaugurate. That he wasn't coming to eliminate bad them, but was coming to take upon himself the evil and the sin of all humanity in his, in his person on the cross. So the Messiah, Jesus would indeed inaugurate the realm of God in justice and righteousness as as had been hoped for, as had been anticipated, but not by destroying bad them and and bringing in and protecting good us. But he would do so precisely in the cross. The chosen one was chosen by God to die. The one destined to crush the serpent would himself be crushed. This is the will of God. And this sacrifice would be once for all, the godly for the ungodly. Uh, Anselm, who was a famous Christian theologian from the Middle Ages, he wrote a book um, called, in Latin, Cur Deus Homo. Or, or the translation is, why the God-man? Answering the question, why did Jesus have to be both God and man? And here's a summary of, of, this, of, his, of his book. He says, uh, man or humanity has sinned against God and owes him restitution. He owes him reparation. There's, there's, he, there's, a, there's a debt there. He's unable to pay and thus he is needy nor is he willing to pay, thus he is unjust. The extent to which man owes God is so great that only God could pay it. But in justice, only man ought to pay it. Therefore, it's necessary for the God-man to pay it. When we look at the cross, we see what it cost God to secure our release from the guilt and the power of sin. I want to distinguish those two things because there's, there's many different ways to try to approach understanding what, uh, what happened at the cross. But I think a, a helpful way 
is just to see these two, these two lines of distinction. One of, of our guilt before a holy God and one of our bondage in, in the power of sin to be unable to, to we, we have to have somebody from without rescue us because we are unable, the humanity is unable to rescue ourselves if we haven't figured that out yet. <clears throat> so, so first, uh, the guilt. We are each unequivocally and individually guilty before a holy God for the things that we've done that we ought not to have done and the things that we have not done that we ought to have done. Jesus, in his, in his body on the cross, atones for our sins by taking it upon himself. So much to be said there. I mean, so much. The guilt, our, our guilt, Jesus, Jesus takes. He doesn't just forget. He doesn't just forgive and forget. He actually, in justice, as the God-man, pays for our sin. And, 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 and then the distinction would be, and then there's the power. There's the guilt of sin, and then there's the power of sin. The guilt we need, we need atonement for. The power we need deliverance from. We are all corporately, humanity, under the power of sin and in bondage. Unable to deliver ourselves from its grip. So Jesus became sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. He, he, uh, he became the curse. Galatians 3 says he became the curse so that we could be blessed, so that we could receive his righteousness. At the cross, as Jesus dies, the curtain in the temple that, that curtained off the Holy of Holies uh, from kind of the common areas where the presence of God was believed to, to be uh, kept or, or, or uh, isolated. It was torn from top to bottom. The presence of God was no longer mediated through religious structures. It was now only and ever mediated through this one man, Jesus Christ. So now uh, all, all, the, all the structures of, 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 of atonement and deliverance and, uh, and, and forgiveness that, that, that were instituted in, the, in the, the law in the Old Testament, they're, they're now obsolete because Jesus is a, is, a, is a mediator of a better covenant that isn't through observation to the law, but through faith in his work, through, through faith in what he has done. All right. So just to reiterate, we have active rebellion for which we need atonement and we need, and we, and we have a, the, the alien power of sin in which we're in bondage for which we need deliverance from a, from by a greater power. Jesus is accomplishing both at the cross. 
So Jesus is God become human. To be for Israel and for all of humanity, what we could never be for ourselves. To take upon himself the consequences of our evil and sacrifice in love to prove more powerful than that evil, than even death itself. So now all of humanity, when faced with Jesus, is faced with a choice represented by a new tree. We can stick with the old ways of being human uh, to seek a human flourishing and progress without the presence of God, to redefine good and evil on our own terms, or to acknowledge, to, to recognize this new way that's opened up for us through the cross where there is deliverance from the bondage of sin, where there, is, where there is atonement for the guilt of sin. Where there is full access to the presence of God that God intended us to walk in. That we would have progress with, with this presence. That he would actually define what human flourishing looks like. That he would actually get to define what good and evil is that we would be submitted to his reign for our good and for his glory. That's the choice that we have. Those who choose this new way that's been opened up for us through the cross, find themselves energized by God's own spirit, animated in life and, and, and thought by no longer by the dominion or the power of sin, but actually by the, by, the, by the power and the spirit of God in us by faith in Jesus. These are people who've been loved and forgiven by a holy and just God who can love and forgive others in return. Because we've, because we've experienced it. No longer can we easily define a good and evil, us and them. But all of us are guilty before a holy God. And all of us are under the bondage of sin and unable to save ourselves. Only Jesus, outside the camp, can save us. For, only Jesus, God, come to earth, can rescue us from this bondage, can remove this, this guilt. And give us new life in him. So I'm tempted now to, to kind of move on in the arc of the Bible into all the implications of that. Holy Spirit, mission of God, the church, all these things. But this week we're in Jesus. And so we'll, we'll get there, I'm sure. <laughs> but today we must realign ourselves. We must put the emphasis on Jesus, the only one worthy. Whew. 
the only one worthy to open the scroll. We have this scene in Revelation where there's agony because humanity's finally seen that we can't fix it. We can't, we don't have a solution. We've tried everything and we, we're still in bondage. And then we see kind of the scene pan and we see Jesus. Actually, we, I think it's the same scene. This is all, I don't have it in my notes. I think it's like John hears, who can, it's like, who can open the scroll? It's the line of the tribe of Judah. And he turns, John, in, in this vision, he turns and he, and he sees the lamb standing as if slain. So he hears, it's the lion of the tribe, of, but then it's a, it's, a, it's a lamb with the marks of its slaughter still on him, but alive. Who's worthy to open the scroll? It's, it's, it's him. He's the only one worthy. And he bears in his body the marks of his sufferings. There's, there's no other way. And so I want to end just with this, uh, this, this scene in the book of Acts. It's really kind of arbitrary, but it's, it gets at what I'm trying to get at. You have Paul and Silas, they're preaching the gospel, and you know sometimes there's consequences to doing that, and so they're thrown in prison. And then rather than kind of grope and, and, and maul and kind of be sad about it, they start worshiping God. They start praising God and singing hymns of, of glory to God in prison. I'll just read it. it says, this is Acts 16, 28, 26. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and asked them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and, and to all the others in his house. At that hour, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and immediately he and his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. This jailer was about to kill himself, because he saw that there was no way forward. There was no hope. All was lost. But he finds they're still there. And he calls out, what must I do to be saved? And that same refrain still echoes in the, in the, in the corridors of our, sec, of, our, of our secular age. who's trying to, to find progress and human flourishing without the presence of God. There's a a haunting echo. What must I do to be saved? Because I can't make it. And the answer remains the same. 
Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So that's our, that's the ground that we stand on. If you are in a place today where you're like, dude, I, I'm tracking with you. I don't know if I've ever believed in Jesus. I don't know if I've ever believed in, in this crucified Messiah, this lamb standing if slain, the only one worthy to open the scroll. I don't know if I've, I don't know if I've believed in him. I want to challenge you today to, to put the weight of your faith, not in what you can do for yourself, which is helpless and futile, but what he has already done for you, which is the only way to life and hope and, and, and truth in the world. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And for all of us here who say, I, hey, I've done that. Well, the story doesn't change. This is still the way to salvation. And belief isn't this one-time kind of mental ascent at this one point. Now, I, I pray that there's, there was, you can recognize there was a point in my life where I, where I put my weight on the, on the faithfulness of God. I put my allegiance in Jesus. But I want to just call you today to, 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 to reaffirm that belief, to, re, to recommit that, that trust in the finished work of Jesus on your behalf to cleanse you from your sin, to free from the bondage of its grip so that you can walk in the newness of life that God opens up for us. Let me pray. Jesus, we look to you today as the only one worthy in a world that that really wants to find a way forward without you. We confess today that apart from Jesus, we are without hope in the world. So Father, we, we turn our gaze to the lamb that was slain. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the one for the many. Jesus, we look to you right now. We don't just uh, talk about you, but we actually turn our affection and our attention to you, Lord. the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb standing as if slain. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your salvation. We thank you for your deliverance. We thank you for your forgiveness. May we walk humbly in the recognition that there's nothing we've done to earn this. There's nothing we've done to deserve your mercy, but you give it freely. 
And we say thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.